everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, your host, and today I am joined by Katie Clifford, fresh off a photo shoot. Katie, how's it going? Good. It's good. Thanks for having me, Christian. Oh, I'm so happy that you joined. It's been forever. I don't know if we've even talked since the games ended in 2002. I don't think so. It's crazy how it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was forever ago. You're right. It seems like yesterday in some respects and in other ways, it seems like it was so long ago because I remember I still... I still had a television that had a tube instead of a right. flat panel and and I had a VCR. I didn't have a DVD player. I mean, man, that yeah. was ages ago. It really was. <laughs> and a special shout out to Jamie Shaw for hooking us back up together. She yeah. she said that uh, uh, you might be interested. So I'll uh, give a shout out to Jamie. Props to Jamie. Yeah, we love Jamie. She's awesome. Jamie is fantastic. Yeah. I love Jamie too. She's wonderful. And hopefully one day... I'll get her on this silly podcast too. <laughs> you can dream, Christian. <laughs> I can dream. I can dream. I know, but come on, Jamie's got great stories. I <laughs> she know she really does. Oh wow! I know she'd be happy to share them in a less public setting. But honestly, this is yeah. just like talking on the phone, except it's recorded. It's totally, not, no one will ever uh, <laughs> hear us, right? Well, I don't know. I hope somebody hears. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I'm spending a lot of time mm. for nothing. But yeah, yeah, I hope somebody hears. Well, before we dive back into the late 90s and early 2000s, yeah, uh, Katie, why don't you tell everybody what you're up to these days? So these days, I actually, funny enough, work for a company called OC Tanner, and they are, we sell recognition and appreciation software to companies, like ways for them to appreciate their employees. But funny enough, OC Tanner made the medals for the 2002 Olympics. So it's a bit of a full circle. I left Utah right after the games and then I moved back and now I work every single day. I walk past, well, before this quarantine started, but I would walk into the office past um, a big glass case that shows how the Olympic medals were made. So it's interesting kind of the, the ways your career twists and turns and comes back on itself. So that's what I do now um, after a long career in sports. So it's an interesting, uh, full circle moment. That's really cool. I completely forgot that OC Tanner actually made the medals. You said that you walked by and they showed the process, how they were made. Just how were those medals made? Well, the way they kind of, the way they have it in the, in the glass case is sort of how the metals originally come in and then how they're found, go through the foundry and they're molded. And that's kind of the process that it shows. So it's really interesting. We even have a case upstairs in our executive office that has a replica of every single metal, every single gold medal. And that is a very cool thing to look at. They also, this is another interesting point. They continue to make the uh, the commemorative rings that Team USA gets. So they have a replica of each ring that the athletes have gotten since 2002. So it's also pretty cool to see those. Um, every time I have someone come visit me, we go up and see the medals and the rings. <laughs> I need to check that out. Maybe when we're no longer under quarantine or yeah, stay come on home, over. stay, what is it? Stay safe, stay, stay home. Stay, stay, stay at home. Yeah, something come on like over. that. Yeah. I'll 
I'll take you upstairs and I'll show you. It's pretty, it's pretty cool having been there, especially to see those medals again. Wow. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. Okay. So you work for OC Town, but now you're yeah. working from home. You're not going yeah. into the office. No, we're not going into the office. I'm working from, well, obviously on a podcast you can't see, but I'm working from the same place I'm doing this podcast, which is my kitchen table. <laughs> All right, Katie, uh, just uh, to let our listeners know, we had a little change of equipment there. So hopefully our listeners can still hear you clearly when you speak. Can you still hear me? I can still hear you. So we're loud and clear. <laughs> loud and clear. Perfect. Okay, let's go back in time then. What were you doing before joining the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? And how did you arrive at Salt Lake? That is a great question. And one of my favorite career stories. So I actually uh, graduated from college in 1998 and went immediately to uh, serve a mission for my church in Switzerland. So I came home in like January of 2000. And I had to get a job, of course. I had studied advertising in college. And um, just kind of looking around, there was an agency I thought about working for. But ever since the Olympics had been announced that Salt Lake had been the bid city, I'm from, I grew up here. So I had kind of dreamed of what it would be like to work there, never really thinking that that was possible. But then I found out that a friend from college had a job in the sport department and this is 2000, right? So things like email are really new. There was an ad in the newspaper for jobs at Slock. And I reached out to this friend and just said, hey, I saw this job. And it was a job I was not qualified for at all. But he, because we had been friends in college, said, you know, there's actually an administrative assistant position open with figure skating and short track. And I was like, I don't know what that job is. And I don't know what those sports are, but sure. <laughs> and so I came in and interviewed and I ended up getting that job. So it was very much like a dream come true, using a connection, really networking. Um, and that was my first grown up job of my life was working for the Olympics. So uh, talk about setting the bar super high. It was, uh, it was a, like, I can't imagine anything that could have been more amazing to do as my very first job. That is awesome. That is awesome. I have to go back to the Switzerland thing though. Um, when you were serving in Switzerland, whereabouts in Switzerland were you serving? Were you on the French speaking side or on the Swiss German side? What language did you end up having to learn? I was on the French side. So I, part of, part of the territory that we covered was actually in France, but I was in Geneva, Switzerland for most of the time I was there. So I spoke French. Um, and, uh, we, we would go, some of the cities that we would be assigned to were in France. I spent a lot of time in Geneva though, but, um, it was a wonderful country. I loved, loved being there. It's beautiful. The chocolate's really good. <laughs> Boy, no doubt. No doubt. I love Switzerland, too. And I'm fortunate to be able to do a lot of work with the IOC. And before that, I was working with Jamie, as we talked about earlier, uh, with Event Knowledge Services. And so I've probably been to Lausanne a 100 times. And I just 
love that place. Did you ever get a chance to go to Lausanne while you were there in, in Switzerland and Geneva? No, sadly, it's even in the territory. It's in the geographical region of the mission. And I know missionaries who did get to go to Lausanne. I never did. It's kind of crazy that I ended up coming home uh, and working for when I was so close. Geneva's really not that far from Lausanne. So one of these days, I managed even working again for Team USA. I've never been to Lausanne. So I've got to get there someday. Absolutely. You got to get there. It's a 45 minute train ride from the Geneva airport. So you have to make that happen. Hopefully you'll get a chance sooner rather than later. Please. Hopefully they'll lift the uh, travel restrictions at some point in the near future. And we'll actually be able to get on planes again. That would be amazing. I would love to get on a plane again. <laughs> All right. So you came back, you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. And what were your responsibilities there? And did they change over time between the time you joined and then through the uh, end of the games? Yeah, totally. So when I first started, um, there were two sport managers that I reported to. So one for short track, uh, Andy Gable, and then Heather Linhart, later Lin, Linhart Zhang, uh, for figure skating. So I was the first one of the first administrative assistants hired in the sport department, and we were all assigned to one of the sport managers. Um, so I kind of started out administrative assistant, a lot of what you would imagine, administrative duties, um, kind of helping to uh, start to plan some of the test events. So I was really lucky because I got in kind of early that I had a lot of responsibilities that were probably higher than my pay grade. Like I got to do some things that an administrative assistant in another organization might not get to do. Um, and slowly they started to hire uh, sport coordinators, which were kind of the level between the manager and my level. Um, and so those, those folks started to come on. I just, because I was pretty conscientious and a hard worker, I was able to work my way up to sport coordinator. So a lot of our responsibilities were for planning the test events, working with the volunteers, uh, beginning to recruit and train people that were eventually going to work at the Olympics. So I had that responsibility. I got to work on the cute little flower sweeper girls who come out and take all the stuffed animals and flowers off the ice after the figure skaters come out. So we spent, you can't even imagine how many hours, uh, recruiting and training those little, those little boys and girls. Um, so there was a lot of just, event responsibility, administrative responsibility, um, and then, you know, how the Olympics go, other duties as assigned. So you find yourself, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, picking up a ISU president and from a bar and taking him to a hotel. Like these are the kinds of things you don't realize you're going to be doing, but, um, but it was fun. So it really started me in a lifelong love of both sports and event planning. Training the flower sweepers. How did you find the flower sweepers? Oh my gosh. So it was a bigger deal than I thought it was going to be. So figure skating clubs here in Salt Lake City, well, up through sort of Ogden, Orem, all the surrounding areas, um, we wanted to give all the kids, I think they were between like eight and 12, an opportunity. Um, there are a lot of parents who were very invested in their kids being flower super. So we wanted to make sure that it was a fair process um, and that every kid kind of had a shot. So we started out with, they had to pass like a basic skills test. We had to make sure they weren't going to fall down. Uh, so we did that. And then um, we, we had actually recruited five or six people, I think, from local clubs to be 
representatives and we had a committee just trying to keep it all really fair. Like we don't want any of these kids to be able to like influence or buy their way. We wanted every kid to have a shot. So we have all these representatives from all these clubs um, and the kids who passed the skills test, we decided would all go into a hat and we would draw out the 24 kids who would be the flower super. So we had this big dinner, we drew the names. Uh, we felt like it was very fair, but at that dinner, <laughs> some of the folks did not think it was fair. And they felt like kids who had, you know, skated their whole lives deserved the opportunity more than a kid who started skating last year. So I remember all of us just being like, feeling like we just got kicked in the gut, you know, like we worked so hard. And then all these people were like, none of this is fair. Um, but fortunately, we were able to kind of talk everyone back into, hey, there's no way to do this besides kind of a random uh, drawing. So we ended up drawing 24 kids names. And those were the kids that uh, that got to be Olympic flower sweepers. But to this day, Lori and Bev and I, the, the couple gals who were involved, are pretty sure there are some parents who for sure hate us still. <laughs> well, I can't imagine anyone hating you, but yeah, no but I also understand uh, I, I didn't have a child that was a figure skater, but I had a daughter that was on the drill team in high school and did competitive dance. And yes, after you invest all that time and energy and money, I can imagine certain parents being a little bit disappointed that their child didn't get uh, blessed with that opportunity. Yeah, we'll say disappointed. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so I'm curious, what happens with all of the flowers and the teddy bears and the stuffed animals and everything that these kids, they go around and they collect all this stuff. Where do they put it all? That is a terrific question. So our venue was where the Utah Jazz plays now. So it was a basketball arena. And so as you can imagine, that is a big amount of ice. And this was the year of Michelle Kwan. I mean, there were not, yeah, Michelle Kwan. Ugh, my brain is short circuiting. Like, wait, that seems so long ago. Yeah, because it was. Um, so we had some real stars uh, in our arena. And so the, the ice was just covered. So the kids, all of this, we would take everything off and then we'd separate it. So things like dead flowers, that kind of stuff, uh, either went to recycling or to the garbage. But all of the teddy bears and toys and those kinds of things, we actually took to Primary Children's Hospital. So that's typically when there's a figure skating event, they donate it to a local hospital. So it's kind of a nice place for those things to end up, um, is with kids who, who are at the hospital. So I think that's really sweet, a sweet tradition that the people throw it knowing it's going to end up somewhere where kids can benefit from it. So the skaters don't have to buy like extra pieces of luggage to stuff all the animals in and take them home with them. No, they do not. They do not. I feel like if I'm remembering correctly, they may, you know, if there's some sentimental thing they want to choose from that, sometimes the skater will go out and take something off the ice. Uh, you know, they throw it while the skater's down there. So there were definitely times where a skater would take maybe something sentimental to remember that particular skate by, but for the most part, hospital. <laughs> What was it called? The Salt Lake Ice Arena? Is that what it was we called, called it. in Olympic Olympic terminology? Right. So it was the Delta Center in its real life, but it was the Salt Lake Ice Center uh, in its Olympic life because with the way 
with the way all of the um, sponsorships go, Delta Airlines was not an Olympic sponsor. They were a sponsor of that venue. So their name couldn't be in the public. So yeah, it, we, it was hard for us to remember. Oh, we got to call it Salt Lake Eye Center. <laughs> I know it's hard. Well, it's hard to, I, I don't even remember what the name is now. It keeps yeah. changing. It was Delta Center and then Energy Solutions. And I think it's now Vivint Smart Home Arena or something like that. It's always the Delta Center to me. You yes. know, it's, that's what the name of that it place is. It will always be the Delta Center to me. I still call it that. <laughs> And one of the interesting things about that venue is it uh, was criticized by some for having some uh, sightline issues, right? Uh, because the arena is designed for basketball and the fans sit very close to the floor for basketball. But for figure skating, the field of play is a bit larger than a, than a basketball court. And so um, that presented some challenges. Yeah, they ended up actually building some stands. Uh, if you look at the pictures, you know, they had to do a lot of seat kills based on it being a basketball venue, but they built kind of a cool grandstand either at both sides. It's hard to remember now, or one of the sides um, that, that they could put some of the premium seating in. And I think that helped alleviate some of those sightline questions. <laughs> and there were some pretty memorable competitions there. And of course there were some judging issues and things like this. So you're in the middle of the action. 100%. I mean, I I was actually listening to a podcast that was kind of recounting the figure skating scandal a while back and just like remembering that was our that was our real life. Was this these things that were happening, there was a judging scandal, there was a short track scandal with a medal being uh, awarded and then taken away from uh, a, an athlete and given to um, to Apollo Ono, who we love. There was a race where everyone fell down and the guy in last place, the Australian, ended up winning the race because everyone else was bleeding. So we had, we had everything you could imagine. Our venue every night was packed. There was uh, press everywhere. The judging scandal, if we just kind of, if people aren't aware, was that the Canadian, it was in pairs and the Canadian skated this amazingly beautiful program. I mean, it was, I was there that night and it was just like magical. And um, they got their scores and their scores didn't really seem to reflect what had just happened on the ice. And then the Russians skated and they got the gold medal score. And it did not seem to anyone like that was correct. And what ended up happening was after long deliberations, they decided to award a second set of gold medals to the Canadians, <laughs> which I mean, you know, this just never happened. So it was bananas at our venue um, every single night, which for a bunch of 25-year-olds was about the coolest thing in the world. Can you imagine anything funner? I mean, that's just so amazing. And you got to do that as your first quote-unquote real job. Yeah, it was wild. One time I remember we had a picnic you might even have been there, Christian, up at the Olympic Park. And it was the summer before the Olympics. And we were sitting there. And again, like so many of us were just, it was our first or second job. We were young. We were, the games was our whole life. And a bunch of us were sitting out on this blanket and like the sun was shining and athletes were coming off the big uh, jumps that they have up there in Park City, like performing for us. And one of the older guys on our team walked over and he was like, 
I hope none of you are under the impression that this is real life because you're never going to have it like this again. And we were all like, oh, no, 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 we know it's really special. But I don't think... (laughs) I don't think we knew quite how special the experience we were having was and that it was just, I've had lots of other cool jobs. Lots of other things have happened. Um, but I will always just treasure those moments at the Olympics. It was, it was a, we used to refer to it as being behind the ropes. Like we felt like we were behind the velvet rope all the time. (laughs) Well, for many, it was the pinnacle of their careers and, one of the reasons I think for that was because I thought the people that we worked with were amazing. I really, really loved everybody that we worked with. As you look back at some of the people that you worked with at that time, you know, who were some of the people that were, I don't know, super funny, larger than life, really inspiring, great leaders? Who were some of those people that stand out? I know it's impossible to make a list because there's so many people. And so I don't want you to feel like you have to create an all-inclusive list or people to feel offended if they are left out. But (laughs) just a few examples of of some people that really were impactful. Totally. Well, fortunately, this is a really, this is an easy one for me because everyone who really kind of shaped my life at that time is someone who's really still in my life. And I will tell you what's really funny is the night that the, a month and a half ago, the night that the, um, the NBA season was canceled because of a player was found to have coronavirus. I was at dinner with three of the women I worked with at Slock because we are still dear friends. So Lori Morenci, who was on my team in figure skating, Bev Carey, who ran our practice venue, Carrie Holt Larson, who worked out at the Oval and Heather Linhart Zhang was supposed to be with us that night and couldn't make it because things got crazy. Um, and we sat there and told Slock stories and said, you know, we got through crazy stuff there. We're going to get through it now. So those women who were just like down in the trenches with me, um, they still are. And, and our other kind of really favorite human, Cecilia, uh, Polly at the time, Moguri now, um, she came to our venue, to the Salt Lake Ice Center to kind of settle things down after someone else had left. Um, she took a leave of absence from Reebok. She was this cool lady. She was, she had good taste in everything and she was pretty and she was cool. And we were all kind of obsessed with her and just at every turn gave me the best advice anyone had ever given me. And she is still a mentor to me. She's a few years older, so she's always a little bit ahead in life and still is one of the people that I admire the most. And like I've talked to Cecilia in the last two weeks. So I am not exaggerating when I say some of the greatest friendships of my life that continue to be people I admire and love, like our friend Jamie Shaw, um, were people that I met at the Olympics. So it's, it changed my life on every single uh, level, the people that were there. They were, to your point, some of the most incredible people ever. Well, make sure that you uh, share the podcast when it airs, you know, let them all know that you've, that you've come on and shared their story. It's kind of funny just today, this afternoon, Bev Carey sent me a note on LinkedIn. No way. 
saying she, yeah, saying she, oh, I listened to the podcast and they're awesome. And, you know, maybe I should be a guest. I'm like, absolutely. So, yeah, definitely going to get Bev on. And if, and uh, please, you know, any Lori or any of the others, if they want to come on, I'd be more than happy to do the podcast do with them. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, that would be amazing. We were actually teasing that you should have all five of us on and <laughs> you can talk to us for four hours because we can sure talk about the Olympics. <laughs> actually, that's what we should have done, right? Yeah. I just got you all in the same room and just let you go. <laughs> we and that would be awesome for me. Yeah. I, at full disclosure, I have five sisters. I have no brothers. So I'm quite accustomed to sitting in a room and saying nothing while five people just blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm totally comfortable with it. That's what it would be like. We can definitely uh, talk all night about our experience and have. We have done that. (laughs) Well, we could talk all night probably as well, but I know that you're a busy person (laughs) and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Yeah. So... Um, as we wind down our little retrospective here, yeah. uh, as I've done with everybody, I've got these little assignments. And so I want to go through those three assignments. And the first assignment is revolving around music. So is there a song or it could be some songs could be more yeah. than one. Um, is there a song that when you hear it, man, it just takes you right back to Salt Lake 2002. It may not be even a song that you particularly like, but it's like, oh yeah, I remember that song. And I think about Salt Lake 2002 every time I hear it. Yeah. So I actually, it's so funny. I've been making during the quarantine, I've been making like a playlist, a song every day that kind of reminds me of something. And just the other day I pulled out an old album by a band called the push stars, which nobody remembers. And, uh, there's a song called any little town. And I listen to that album constantly, uh, all of the year 2000 and 2001. And so when that song comes on, it just, it reminds me of just that magical time. And even as I was listening to it the other day, it has been a long time since I put that song on. And I just like feel 25 again, which is such a cliche thing to say, but it, it brings back all the memories of being, uh, in that venue and at that time and wearing those green vests. <laughs> well, yeah, you being sport, you got to wear the cool green vest, you know, us normal people, regular people, we had to wear the mountain shadow, but you guys got the nice green colors. It's true. Ours was cooler than yours. I'm not going to, I'm not going to play false modesty. The green was better. (laughs) It definitely was better. All right. Push stars. I hope I can find it on Spotify because. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Because we create, we're creating this playlist on Spotify. Salt Lake 2002 retrospective and all the songs that people talk about are on that playlist. So you can just do a search on Spotify, find Salt Lake 2002 retrospective, and you can see all the songs that everybody's nominated so far. Oh, so fun. I will definitely check that out. Okay. So that was question number one. Question number two is about the food. Mm. And so as you think back to your days at Slock, maybe breakfast or lunch, or maybe even a dinner, is there a place that you'd like to go with your friends at Slock and just hang out or have a nice meal? Yeah. So remember we were the babies, so we did not go to the fancy places. Uh, that's what our bosses did, but there was that little, um, little section of Gallivan Center right behind our office that had sort of a rotating cast of restaurants. And there was a crepe shop called European Connection. I don't know if you ever went there, but they- I remember that, yes. Yeah, so they had these French crepe uh, makers and they would put- (laughs) 
all kinds of stuff in there. They, they were like real sandwiches that were just made on a crepe. It wasn't as French as it could have been, but they were so good and they were a little pricey. So we always had to like decide, Ooh, are we doing European connection today? Um, and it was like our fun treat. And I still like am sad that that place, it is no longer with us, unfortunately. But sometimes when I'm in Galvin Plaza, I will just mournfully think about how delicious European connection was and that what a treat that was to to eat. Are any of those places still in that little section? Because, yeah, you would walk behind the it was American stores, now Wells Fargo building. You walk behind there and there was that you're right, a little row and several little restaurants there. Um, are any of them still there or are they all gone there? I mean, it's, there are things there, but nothing that was there when we were there. It's all brand new. So nothing survived. I think there were quite a few places that didn't survive after we all left. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we've had several listeners talk about the globe cafe. Remember that was right across the street and globe and the lazy moon and none of those are there. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's changed quite a bit. Okay. Well, given your position in sport, being so close to the field of play, you've already talked to us about some magical moments, but is there a moment, it could have been a competition or it could have been something behind the scenes that when you think about it, it just it just gives you those warm, fuzzy feelings about the games, uh, something you'll never forget, one of those iconic goosebump moments for you. Yeah, for sure. So I was really lucky because we were uh, the figure skating venue, we got to see pretty much every uh, figure skating event that happened. And going into those games, um, Michelle Kwan was definitely a real favorite. Um, and she's a beautiful, amazing skater. Absolutely. You know, and I think all of us kind of assumed um, that she was going to win. And then Sarah Hughes skated her program. And I was watching it on a monitor. I wasn't watching it. Uh, I wasn't on the ice or right there, but I was watching on a monitor and you just knew, like you just watched it and you knew that she had skated the program of her life and that she was going to win a gold medal. And I remember kind of looking at the other, the other ladies and just being like, she's going to win. Like that's, that's it. And seeing her just a few minutes later, she was in the hall. Like she wasn't even in the dressing room. She was in the hallway, just so elated and so excited because she knew, she knew, everybody knew the whole, the whole venue knew. And it's to me, I've worked other games and I've been, I've had just special moments like crazy. You know, when someone fulfills the dream that they've been working on their entire life, like you see it happen. It is the most unreal thing. And to just have played a tiny part in making sure that we took care of everything so that all she had to do was go out there and skate the program of her life. That's, I think, what keeps all of the junkies going that go to the Olympics over and over is because if you can play a teeny tiny part in setting that stage, um, it's super fulfilling and watching someone's dreams come true just never gets old. I want to come back to something though before we conclude. You you mentioned that you built friendships that have really lasted for the you know for 20 years or more now. And you've also had opportunity to work in this uh space. So what was the legacy for you, Katie, mm. of these games both personally and professionally? Oh gosh, that is 
a great question. Again, one of my favorite questions. So, um, personally, I think that, you know, I grew up here in Salt Lake. I had big dreams, but wasn't sure how they were going to happen. And, um, I went to school in kind of a small town and, there's no way that you can work at the Olympics and not have the feeling that anything is possible. And it sounds so cheesy when you say that, but you're watching people win gold medals. Like that's one of those things that when someone's like, Oh, it's not like you can win a gold medal. It's a thing that's unreachable, right? It's an unreachable goal. And, and you get to be there and see that happen. Like you see the people that that happens for. And for me, it completely changed the way I looked at how, at what was possible. And my life, my trajectory was forever changed by that sort of click of, and anybody can do anything. These, these athletes are amazing, but they're not, they're not a different species than you or me. They are just people and this is happening for them. And I think that that's the legacy for me that continued into the rest of my life. Cause I've had unreal opportunities. I've worked for huge brands that I could only have dreamed of. And, and I've worked more Olympics and I've done all this cool stuff and traveled all over the world. None of that seemed possible when I was 16 and it was working for the Olympics that turned that key. As far as professionally, sort of the same thing happened was when you get that job as your first job, then when you want to go work for Puma or you want to go work for the North Face or you want a job with Team USA again, there's no barrier in my brain of like, oh, that's too big. That's too much. I couldn't possibly do that. Uh, yes, I can. And so I, I am a natural worrier. I am a natural like, oh, I don't know. And all of that was able to go away because of my experience of working at Slock. So it really opened a mental door for me and a professional door that, uh, that's carried with me 18, what is it? 20 years now, 20 years. I started in April of 2000. So 20 freaking years, (laughs) (laughs) 20 amazing years. And I hope you have 20 more amazing years and who knows? I mean, the games could return to Salt Lake. Gosh, let's hope that would be amazing. We could all do it again, get the band back together. Yeah, I I think it could be such an interesting combination of seasoned veterans and young people like you were. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, like I was when we started this journey 20 years ago. Yeah, I think it would I think it would be amazing. It'd be a cool bookend for a lot of us. The beginnings and kind of the twilight. (laughs) Yeah, definitely for me. I mean, you're younger than I am, but I but for me, I think if those games happen in 2030 or Man, if they happened in 2034, man, I, I'd be super old. But uh, <laughs> I think either of those, that would probably be the that would be the end. You know, it would be a fitting end. Uh, fitting end. Yeah, be a cool, cool ending. It was an amazing experience. Katie, thank you so much. I I had a blast talking with you and hearing these stories. If people want to connect with you uh, through social media or other means, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah. So I am, uh, I have sort of quit a lot of social media in the last couple of years, but I'm still on LinkedIn at Katie Clifford. I'd be happy to connect, especially with little colleagues there. Um, and I am on Instagram at replicate 34. So it's R E P L I K A T E like my name, Katie 34 on Instagram. So totally happy to connect with people. Um, it's been really fun. Social media has allowed us to stay friends with a lot of people we would have lost touch with. So 
it's fun to see uh, old names pop up on those inboxes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you again so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll be back next week. Awesome. Thanks so much, Christian. This was really, really fun. 